You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. So we start every interview out with the same question. Where did you go to school and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I will say the same thing several times, which is basically that I went to college because I had nothing else to do. I was a classically trained cellist, or I am a classically trained cellist. So I wanted to be a musician. I play guitar. I wanted to be you know, a rock star, basically. So I went to community college for a couple of years, and then I applied to music conservatories all over the country. And to my shock, and apparently my parents' shock as well, I basically got in everywhere. And I got scholarships, but none of them were really enough to cover the cost of going to a private music school. My real dream had been to go to Berklee College of Music and study film scoring and engineering. And I basically wanted to be Danny Elfman. Why didn't you do that, though? What seems like such a small amount of money now was just insurmountable back then. Um, for a whole host of reasons. And so I also got accepted to Florida State University, and I got a small scholarship there, which was enough to cover the difference between what I was able to borrow and what I would need to attend school there. And so that's what I did. Were you living in Florida? Is that where you grew up? I didn't grow up in Florida, but I I went to community college in Florida, and I was living there near my grandparents in St. Petersburg. After about a year and a half, I had had to have major surgery on my wrist and was out of commission for a little while with playing. And at about that same time, Elie Wiesel came onto campus to speak. And if you've ever been in his presence, it's absolutely remarkable. He's, uh, he was a giant in a very small body. So I listened to him and he spoke to me at a place where I think at that particular point in my life, I needed to hear certain things about who I was in the world, how I interacted with other people, and where my base understanding of people had come from. And living in Tallahassee, which is one of the, or is the only Southern capital to not fall to the hands of the Northern aggressors, as they like to remind you repeatedly. And yes, they had their very own bus boycott there as well. And I'm rolling my eyes for everybody who can't see because it is a very, very Southern town. And I am very, very much not a Southern girl. Yeah, I think people forget Florida is in the South. Oh, it's And that part of Florida in particular is crazy South. So here I am, a radically liberal Jew, uh, living in a radically conservative Southern uh, town, on a college campus that it's just, the entirety of it is an oxymoron. So I switched my majors at that time and undertook to finish a degree in history and then applied to graduate school to work on a PhD in modern European history with a focus on um, the Holocaust. It's amazing to me that you, it seems that you went from music, art, to something completely different. 
that it seems like a huge leap. It's my entire life is just sort of something catches my attention and I just run with it for whatever circumstances have put me in that particular situation. And as much as I don't like change, <laughs> I go with it and it always seems to work out for the best. So there I was doing that, working on a PhD, and then I just kind of woke up one morning and I said, I really don't want to live in the South anymore. I can't stand it here. I'd sort of been burnt out on it. I looked at the job prospects that were out there for PhDs in history and where I might have to live and what salary I might be earning. And I said, you know what, I'm going to apply to law school. Everybody tells me that I like to argue and I'll just give it a try. And again, I applied to a bunch of law schools and shockingly, they they accepted me. <laughs> so. So, so, there's so I have so many questions. So you had already become an accomplished musician really before you went to college. How did you do that? When did you start playing musical instruments? As long as I can remember. In sixth grade, they offered uh, orchestra at my middle school and I desperately wanted to play the harp. That was, I picked, I remember cutting out pictures of harps and leaving them all over the house. Did you want to be a mermaid too? <laughs> I wasn't that girly, but there was just something about the harp that like, it was just like, nobody else is going to play the harp. So I have to do that. And of course, my parents did not buy me a harp. They bought me a violin. And so I played violin. And by the end of the first year, I was sort of bored with playing the violin. And then in seventh grade, they needed cello players. And I jumped up the first day of class and said, I'll play the cello because it's very big. And they said, fine. And they loaned me a cello from the school. And then that was it. And the following year in eighth grade, my grandparents and my uncle bought me a cello as my bat mitzvah present. I still have that cello 35 years later. Do you play it? Yeah. I, in fact, I just bought a new cello during quarantine, a hundred-year-old German cello. And I started taking lessons again. That's great. If you had it here, I'd ask you to play. I thought about bringing it, but then I was like, oh, that's just another day. They're big. They're big. But I've, I've held on to that, that cello all these years. So now I have both of them. They're mounted on the walls in my music room at home. And my lessons are on Friday nights. And every week I say to my, my cello teacher, I'm like, you did such a good job teaching me this piece of music. And she just, she's like 23, 24. She's, she laughs. She's like, you already know how to play. She's like, all I'm doing is just like forcing you to do it. And I'm like, that's yeah. right. That's fine. Well, sometimes that's really what you need with most things, right? You just have to do it. And then she yells at me. She's like, you know, no flat fingers. I'm like, okay. So what did you want to do, though? Did you want to be a rock star? So I really didn't want to perform. And I know everybody laughs when I say this, but like the last thing in the world I wanted to do was be on stage. I hated performing. It was a tremendous amount of stress. It is hard to believe you don't want attention when you have pink hair. <laughs> and drive a pink car. It's true. But having to put that much time and energy and effort into making something what I thought had to be that perfect in order to present it to other people, it was just not something that like I I felt a passion for. So I really wanted to write music and create and be behind the scenes. And especially with the film scoring, because 
the way music is woven in when it's done right, you it's so seamless and you don't even realize that it's there in the background sometimes throughout the entire movie. So when you listen to films like Star Wars or Edward Scissorhands, and they literally have a soundtrack that's almost playing throughout the entire movie. And you don't realize it unless you're looking for it. Yeah. And it's there, but it's such a, an integral part of the whole story. And so it's like this this one almost tiny, insignificant thing really changes the whole tenor of the... Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, they have a whole category for in the Oscars. Yeah. So is it too late? I mean... I don't think it's ever too late for anything. I think that now... I think that my my interests have changed and my approach to music has changed. So now I'm much more relaxed with performing. So I enjoy performing and I don't feel the need to be the perfectionist. Do you write music? No, but I'm okay with that. You know, I used to a long time ago, but I'm I'm okay just being part of a, a bigger group. And I play with my daughter now, which when she when she will do it with me. And it's that is the most blissful moment that you can possibly have is to stand next to your child and make music. It's just amazing. And you also did, didn't you do something in Vegas that was... Oh, yeah, I did the rock. Some kind of... The rock what band. Was rock, what was it? Uh, rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Yes, where you actually go and you spend a day putting writing a song performing it so we did like three songs we did all cover songs I was so pregnant like I couldn't even breathe that day and I felt bad for the guys because I think they were so nervous because I was I was pregnant with my son they were afraid you were gonna pop right there (laughs) I mean I was huge so yeah I did that that was a lot of fun and now Madison does stuff with uh, Lake House Music, which is sort of a unique music program that's here in Asbury Park. Basically, I'm just like there to support her. And that, that brings me happiness. That's great. Yeah. That's one of the regret that I have that I never learned how to play a musical instrument. Why don't you just do it then? I know, right? With all the other million things that I have to do. I know, do. but now it's so easy. You can take virtual lessons and sit at your house and you don't even have to drive to a place. I do have a secret fantasy of learning how to play the piano because I think that maybe deep inside me there is a Lady Gaga. <laughs> but I might be a little afraid that if I try it, I will realize there is no Lady Gaga in there. And actually, my deeper fantasy, this isn't supposed to be about me, but I have to share it, is to just have an apartment that's completely empty except it has a piano in it and i just play the piano just go there play the piano and leave yeah just play piano all day just because i think a lot of people that grow up to be musicians and and that's what they become like gaga i mean that she you know lived her music so as much as you loved it if i guess if you weren't doing it 24 7 and just because of the path that you've had in your life, maybe it served a purpose, but it wasn't meant to be your your full-time job. I think that it was meant to be part of my life. And it was meant to be something that I would have and be able to relax me and that I could enjoy and get away from the stress of everything else. And so I consider it to be an integral part of who I am 
as a person. Um, but I don't feel like I lost out on anything by not pursuing the path. Now, I would kill to have the opportunity to go back and finish a degree in music. And I may do that someday. But it would just be for me. It wouldn't be because I wanted to do it as a career or ever wanted to make money or anything like that. I would just literally just do it to make myself feel good. Well, then maybe that was the purpose. Because a lot of people don't have that outlet. And I say that all the time. And that like, even when you're saying like, I'm not I'm not even kidding, go take piano lessons. If it's, I do know someone I think is very talented at teaching piano, but she lives kind of far from me and zoom. Yeah, you know what? I never really thought about that, but that could work. I mean, there's no way that I could take cello lessons with my schedule and my lack of desire to give up any time with my kids. So when all of this happened with COVID, um, I mean, and, and I hate to say it because I don't want to in any way diminish the negative aspects of what's going on in the world right now because it's just, it's a tragedy and it's it's horrific. But for me personally, in many respects, what's happened this year has been the best thing because it's forced me to take weekends off from work. It's forced me to get back to playing the cello, which is one of my greatest passions. Um, I'm able to have the time to take cello lessons. I never would have been able to get in the car, drive to a, a studio, take the lesson. I mean, like that's that's like a two hour, two and a half hour ordeal. Me on Friday nights at 6.15, I log on to Zoom, I do a half hour lesson and poof, I'm done. And I walk back upstairs from my music room and, you know, I'm done. So I've taken this situation which has been so bad for so many people and tried to find ways to turn it into really positive things in our existence so that I didn't let it get us down. Yeah. And it's obvious now, but if somebody listens to this, you know, two years from now, we're talking about COVID. The the, the great pandemic of 2020, not the murder hornets that you'll have two years from now. Or whatever is around the corner (laughs) in 2020, because 2020 has been a little bit of a shit show. (laughs) That's a very, very nice way of saying it. It has. Yeah. It's just been like one batshit crazy after the next it has been it's but I mean I'm sure that we'll all look back on this and just be like wow that was one crazy year I can't believe we all lived through all of that well hopefully we're not in 2021 thinking 2020 was good (sighs) I don't want to say that I put positive vibes in the universe I mean I think that we will um I think that we will by next year start start to turn the corner but I I think it is unrealistic to think that people are going to get it together this year. I just think that, listen, I lived in the South for a very long time, so I had a nice Ouija board as to what was going to happen with all of this. And A Ouija board? Yeah, I mean, this is how people are down South. I haven't used a Ouija board in years, probably since I was a kid. You can make that like one of your... Have like a seance femme esquire. Yes. There's got to be like Wiccan lawyers out there somewhere. There's got to be. Do you think they might keep that a little quiet though? I don't Maybe know. it depends where they live. I don't know. <laughs> we had a Wiccan that worked in the firm once. I can't remember if John was with me or not back then. I remember when I was a kid, we got a Ouija board. My mom got a Ouija board 
and we used it and who I don't even remember what questions we were asking and then my mom decided it's kind of dark like some people think it's black magic maybe we shouldn't have this so she threw it in the garbage and we lived in an apartment complex where there was a dumpster that's where you put everything and it kept coming back like it kept it like it didn't leave the dumpster for some reason it somehow ended up staying around the garbage so I think at least two occasions it was supposed to have been thrown out and it just showed up somewhere where it wasn't supposed to be. So that was confirmation that we need to get rid of this thing. It's possessed. <laughs> and you don't think one of the neighbors was just pulling it out to I, mess with you? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm mean, i saying this tongue in cheek, We, you know, but it, it was just funny. So that was really my last experience with a Ouija board. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so I do want to ask you, though, if you – if it's something you want to talk about, were you born in New Jersey? I'm kind of curious, like your connection to Florida. So I give you the, the, like the 30 seconds. So I was born in Philadelphia when I was six, my family moved to Texas and we lived just outside of Houston in a small community called spring. And then my, yeah, my sophomore year in high school, we, my, just my mom and I, my parents had been divorced at that point. Just my mom and I moved to um, Orange County, California, and I ended up graduating from Dana Hills High School. But I graduated early because I had, they ran the high school more like a college, so it was more like complete your credits. So I was able to complete my credits early, and I was basically just taking music classes my senior year. I was like in the jazz band and the orchestra, and all I did was music. The year I was graduating, my grandfather had a major heart attack, and I was very close with my grandparents. And so I got in my car and drove from literally where Interstate 10 starts in California to practically where it ends in Florida by myself at 17. Pre-cell phones, pre-internet, you know, all yeah. of this stuff. And it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. And then I was in Florida for a little while, and then my best friend from growing up was in a major car accident just before what would have been high school graduation. And so then I went back and spent the rest of the summer in Houston and ultimately came back to Florida to start community college in the fall. So you, you started out in community college. So did I. I think it's a great way to do it. Yeah. Um, I saved a lot of money. I I didn't want to go to college. I know. I find that interesting because you now you're like uber educated and you know have all these degrees and this this academic background background, but you didn't want to go to college. So that's kind of interesting. But but really, I know you say you went to college because you didn't have anything else to do. But there had to be something driving you there to go to college. I just needed something to occupy my time. And so I went and I took my first year was basically all music classes. So it was work and work and work and not know any, I didn't know anybody because I had just moved across the country. I didn't have any friends. I mean, like I literally, I had so few friends that my mom had followed me and moved uh, there and bought a condo. I had so few friends that my mom actually let me get a cat because I was so lonely. So she took me to get this little kitten who I named Gershwin Tchaikovsky, <laughs> this tiny little guy. That's a big name. <laughs> big name for a little, a little tiny baby kitten. And uh, we called him Gersh. And 
I mean, I, I literally knew, knew no one. So I said, all right, well, I have nothing else to do. I don't have a social life. It's just me hanging out with my grandparents all the time. So I'll just go to school. And then I just kept going to school. You just kept going like Forrest Gump when he went running. <laughs> just never stopped. And then eventually somebody was like, it's time to graduate. And I was like, really? <laughs> yeah, I know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind being a professional student. Yeah, but so it's expensive. Yeah, it is. I'll yes. I'll be paying for that until um, February first, two thousand and thirty-seven. Well, at least <laughs> you have a way to pay for it. That's true. I wouldn't have if I hadn't gone to law school. So yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. But well, we know some broke lawyers. It happens. Um, I mean, generally, I think it's a good profession where you can make a good living. But I think. I think as long as you're doing something that you enjoy, I guess we'll get to whether you enjoy it. That's always the question. Well, that's my theory. It could be wrong. But I don't want to go off on a tangent. So you finished two years at community college? I think I might have even done a little bit more than the two years. Um, I finished the two years at community college. I applied to music schools. I ultimately ended up at Florida State. The full undergraduate degree, including the community college, took me five years, and I was at like 180-something credits, so. <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah. Nothing wrong with the five-year plan. And then... Um, so you had to pick a major at some point. What was your major? History is what I ended up graduating with. I have a degree in history with a minor in music. And then where did law school come into it? Like, at, Do you remember the moment when you thought, maybe I should be a lawyer? Because you wanted to get, you wanted to get a PhD or you do have your PhD? I ended up with just the master's. So I have enough credits to be into the PhD program, but I got the master's degree and then just got out of there. Why didn't you continue on? What Was there something that intervened? I was going to do a joint program when I went to law school, but the places that had the joint programs where I liked the professor that I would be working with, like I went to see uh, Richard Brightman at American University in Washington, who was or is one of the top scholars in my particular uh, expertise in, in history. And I loved it and I love DC, but I didn't want to go to law school in DC because I didn't want to get swept up into the, the political crap because I can't stand that stuff. Yeah. So, so that was sort of out. And then Rutgers doesn't really have anybody in my field. Princeton does. But in order to do the PhD at Princeton, like, you have to be there. Like it can't you can't do it like part time. They wanted you there. So when I wrote to the guy and sent him my thesis, he's like, yeah, it's very interesting. But you know, you have to be here. And I'm like, I don't want to. What was your thesis? Jewish armed resistance, uh, Jews in the army of Krajowa, the Polish home army. So Wow. It's really like, there's like 10 people who are interested in discussing it with me. Do you, are you still interested? <laughs> do you still read materials? and? I do. Um, keep up with your studies? There's not a lot of Jewish armed resistance. And so um, I'm probably one of a handful of people in the world that can like discuss it intelligently. But yeah, I I do. And I'm in particular, I, I'm fascinated with Russian history and Russian literature, Jewish history, Middle Eastern history. But interestingly, the P 
period from like German unification through uh, the end of the Third Reich is really a, a fascinating time in German history because so much happened and it's so like with the nationalism and the unification of Germany and Bismarck and all of this stuff. Yeah, I don't even know what you're talking about. But <laughs> I mean, I'm not too proud. I mean, you know, I'm a typical American that doesn't know a lot about history. Well, unfortunately, but it's have to read more. It's not just that. It's just that it's also, a you know, a particular time period where, you know, if you've done a lot of study in that time period, then you would know a lot. And if not, then you just wouldn't. I mean, so I know I'm badgering you with this question, but I'm trying to pinpoint where where was the deviation? Because I feel like you're on this path. You're going to get your PhD. You're fascinated with the subject. I'm assuming you thought you would be a college professor. Correct. And then at some point, you're like, okay, maybe I should go to law school. Well, or I could have been an international spy. Maybe you are. I could be one right now. you are. You don't know. Anything is possible. (laughs) She says as she pours more wine. So if you have enough of those, you will tell me if you are. I'll take a little more, although I didn't finish this. You'll tell us if you're an international spy. Thank you. She really filled that glass up, you guys. I just want you to Only know. Roger Clark would know that. <laughs> Don't you remember Professor Clark from Rutgers, the runner? Oh, yes. The Aust- yes. Oh, not He's not Australian. He's, he's a New Zealander. Oh, forgive me. Yes. Yes. I, I feel like I just, I forgot everything. <laughs> everything. Everything I learned from law school, just the, the basics. I know the basics. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Did you like law school? Um, I mean, I didn't dislike it. I didn't like it. I I always feel like there's people that hated it and people that loved it. And I've always heard that if you love, if you hated law school, you will love practice. And if you loved law school, you will hate practice. I I don't know that that's true for me. Um, I didn't like it and I didn't dislike it. I like going to school. So, um, I, and I just like being on a college campus and I like, taking classes and I like learning. So that part of it, I really liked. But it cannot be said about me that I have any great passion for the law itself. So so that begs the question more. Why? Why did you go to law school? You're going to say asked and answered at some point. Uh, no, I mean, I think that the idea that I had was that I could get the degree. And I really wanted to move to Europe. Because by that point, I was very much uh, immersed in, you know, being in Europe and um, speaking German. I learned the German language for graduate school and my studies, and I had spent some time in Germany. And uh, I really liked being there. It's a beautiful country. I had thought, well, you know, with my skill set, as unusual as it was at that point, that I could market myself to multinational companies and I would be more of an asset to them because I could be in Germany, but I'm an American and I speak German, but then I have this background in history and background in law and, you know, whatever. That makes sense. Are you fluent in German? I would say that there was a point that I was, but now my German is, you know, like bad conversational German. But if you went to Germany, you could get by. If I went to Germany, I could get by. Or sometimes I offer people the option. Like I was once in Rome and I said, I don't speak any Italian. So I'm like, you have two options. You have English or you have German. You have been equally invaded by both. (laughs) 
Which do you prefer? How does that go over? I'm not well liked anywhere I go. <laughs> so We can talk about that more. <laughs> I want to so, ask you, though. I know I'm being totally nosy, but I have to ask. I'm usually nosy anyway, but you gave me wine, so I'm not responsible for anything. You said that you had needed to hear certain things when you were young in college. What what did you need to hear? What were the things you needed to hear? What do you mean? You said earlier, I forget who you said came to visit, not visit you, but someone you had the the privilege of their presence. Right. Like, oh, Elie Wiesel. And who is that? Elie Wiesel is a Holocaust survivor who um, wrote a, a trilogy of books that's sort of standard operating for teaching young people about the Holocaust. And he is very well known throughout the entire world for his scholarship and teachings and lecturing on not just his experience, but on the Jewish experience generally. So sometimes you grow up and you have a very good sense of identity. And then other times you grow up and it's not quite as clear. So my family is Jewish. We moved down south when I was six, and we were one of just a handful of Jewish families in the community. And those families joined together. They formed a congregation and whatever, but it was really like living as a Jew in the South in a not-Jewish community. So it's a very strange atmosphere, and you're really cut off from so much within the Jewish community. I'll call it Southern Jewry, okay? So like our rabbi would wear like a cowboy hat to and from the synagogue. He was great. Rabbi Robert Scharf, okay? And he was hilarious. And we loved him. But he was like a rabbi and he had like a Southern drawl. And it was just, it was too much. Uh It somewhat came together for me when I heard Elie Wiesel speak because... I don't think I had really acknowledged or recognized who I was as a as a Jewish person, really. Even though I had grown up in a Jewish home, even though, you know, we went through all of the the rituals, even though I was, you know, like as a cellist, they would say, oh, you know, you can play the Kony Dre at the high holidays, all this stuff. So I didn't realize really who I was as a Jew and how that had formed my personality and why I interacted with other people in the way that I did. And so that allowed me to, to view things differently and better. You know, it was a positive experience. Well, how would you say you interacted with people? I don't know that I understood the implications sometimes of what people were saying or why they were saying it. Like, my best friend growing up was, uh, or, or is, she passed away, but... Her father's from Singapore. Her mother is British, so she's Eurasian. But she's very, very dark-skinned, okay? And people would call her derogatory names, and I would be like, why are you saying that? Like, I never saw her as being different from me, right? I didn't see her color, not because I wasn't trying to acknowledge who she was, Mm -hmm. but because I just didn't give two shits. She was my best friend. I like you know like I loved her for who she was as a human being and none of the other trappings of society made any difference to me. But when I heard Mr. Wiesel speak, I felt like an awakening where I said, "Oh, that's what's going on, 
right? Like Jews are actually different from other people. Black people are different. Like they look different, right? And I had never really accepted or acknowledged that. Not because I was a racist or didn't like people because of the way they looked or something, but I was just, my whole existence was, I wasn't raised to look at people that way or judge people that way because that's not what a young Jew was supposed to do. Like you learn about people, you question things, you ask questions, you, you, you seek out knowledge, you seek out to find who that person is. And I think he allowed me to have that moment where it's sort of like everything all came together for me and I got it. Like here's all the shit that I've learned my entire life. Well, you were young, right? How old were you? Oh, I was like, 21. Oh, so young. I was just talking about this with someone, how when you get older, when you're 21, you don't realize how young that really is. Because you think, well, I'm a grown-up now, you know? Like, I'm not in high school anymore. Sort of like Sydney, my goddaughter, saying, I'm not a baby. She's seven. You know, she'll say, I'm not a baby. It's like a, you, you see a 21-year-old saying that. I'm not a baby. I'm not a high schooler anymore. And like, you know what? When we're 80. Yes. We'll look back and say at the 45-year-old, you know. Yeah, I mean, now it's I'm the smartest I've ever been at 45. But when I'm 75, I'll probably look back on 45 and think I still had a lot to learn. As perhaps we should. Right? Yeah, you should. You should still be learning. You should be learning until you you die. And that's, that's the moment, right? So it's that moment where you realize that everything that has happened in your life gets you to the point where you're at. And you realize that everything that's going to happen in your life is going to lead you to the next thing. Absolutely. So in some respects, I was very lucky to have that moment at the point that I did because so many things that that have happened in my life since then I wouldn't have had the pause to stop and say, why is this happening right now? And should I do this? Or worry if I was making like a bad or wrong decision. And so if I had been afraid to do certain things, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now. And that's what I needed. And that's what I got from hearing him speak. And that's really an amazing gift that he gave to me that he's passed now and I'll never know. I have the opportunity to thank him for that, but I'm sure that he knows that by having spoke to so many people throughout his life and having survived and then gone on to do the things that he did, you know, I've I've had the great honor of speaking to many, many Holocaust survivors over the years. And I can tell you that all of them feel that by telling their story and sharing their experiences, that they know that they are impacting people and they do it specifically for that reason. And that's an amazing thing. It is. I think that's what everybody wants, though, right, is to make an impact in, on the world yeah, in but some way. Not everybody lives through the, the, the terror that mm-hmm. these people went through. And so to have the um, strength to be able to share their experiences and be vulnerable enough after that to to yeah. talk to other people. I mean, they're they're really the most amazing people that I've ever. Have you ever gone to the Anne Frank House? I've not been to the Anne Frank House. I have been to Yad Vashem. 
Obviously, I've been to the Holocaust Museum several times. I did research there one summer. And I work at Florida State. We have the World War II archive, and I had done some interviews for them years ago. So That was um, definitely an amazing experience. It's, it's not a fun place to visit, but... No, it wasn't fun. But in East, uh, if you're ever in Eastern Europe, they have the... Um, Auschwitz-Birkenau is actually set up now as a museum. So I was there many years ago with Marga Silberman Randall, who's a survivor. She's also passed. You know, I went there with a, a group of American college students and German college students, sort of like a bridging the gap thing. It was great. Did you ever trace your ancestry? And- I had an uncle that did it. And my whole family had basically come over here back in the late uh, 19th, 1800s and so like 1880s 1890s so my family was already here I think my mother's grandmother was the last one to come over like her parents and she was I don't know two or three when she came over so Hmm. yeah that's an interesting experience is your husband Jewish no was that scandalous in your family I was the first one to marry outside the faith it was so scandalous you have no idea. And he didn't convert? Oh, my God, no. No, okay. <laughs> I know sometimes that happens. But but I know that's a little controversial sometimes, too. So did, how did your family take that? Did you have a hard time? So my grandmother, well, first of all, I it was double scandal because I was pregnant before we got married. <laughs> I mean, I was old at that point, that right? I was, I was like 27. So my grandmother says to me, she's like, Amala. I never thought you would find a man who would have you. (laughs) You're like, take that, Grandma. I'm like, I said to her, I'm like, are you okay? Both sides. His family was like hysterical. My family was hysterical because he wanted to get married and I didn't want to get married. And so the only person that I cared about their opinion was my grandmother. And so I said, do you care? She's like, I can't believe that anybody's even with you. I'm like, really, Grandmom? She's like, you're so old. I never thought you were going to get married. I'm like, I'm 27. Yeah. I'm not that old. Well, my my grandmother used to tell me when I was 27, you know, your eggs are drying up. <laughs> she, she used to say that. But how old was she when she got married? She was like 20, you know, early 20s. Oh, well, she was old. My grandmother, I think she must have lied about her age. She met my grandfather during the war, right? And 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 they're the, they were the best. He would tell the story. He would say, you know, the night that I met your grandmother, she she let me have some, no, right? And, my, and really then scandalous. she would scream, like wherever she was in the state, she could hear him and she would scream, Stan. That's not true. Don't tell your grandchildren that story. It's a lie. (laughs) We'll never know, will we? Oh, my God. They were so funny. But they met during the war. I have the uh, love letters that he would send to her. That's so nice. And they were so beautiful. Did you have any of them framed? I have them. uh, Actually, Madison, I think, just took them from me, and she's putting them into an album now. That's so nice. But, yeah, I mean... He would send her these beautiful letters, and then right after the war, they were married. You know, they had four kids, and the rest is, and they were married for almost 60 years. Why would you say your mom, your grandmother, was so such an important figure? Did you guys have similar personalities? Probably. I think other people would say that, but my father's parents died when I was pretty young, 
and I would spend a lot of time with my my maternal grandparents in the summers. And so I just grew a very strong bond with them. And when my grandfather died, my grandmother literally went crazy. Like I would call her and she didn't even know who I was. Aww. And then that was sort of like the end of any family get togethers or anything like I mean, it was just the, the family sort of broke apart at that point. So very, very sad. But no, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents were probably the closest of anyone, even with my parents, they were closer to me than than anyone in, in the family. So you left Florida eventually, though, right? You went to Rutgers for law school. Why was Rutgers the one you picked? I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> this is a theme in your life. I don't know. I mean, I, I got accepted to, to a bunch of law schools. Rutgers offered me a very good financial aid package. I wanted to be in or immediately adjacent to a big city in the Northeast. I had gotten into yeshiva, but they didn't have any scholarship money left. Cardoza, Benjamin Cardoza Law School at yeshiva. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any scholarship money left for the year that cause I literally like woke up one morning and I'm like, I'm applying to law schools. And then within like 10 days, I had 10 applications out and had signed up to take the bar exam. Okay. Wow. The LSAT. Yeah, yeah. the LSAT. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, like it was literally like a burp. I think I'll just do this today. And there and there I was. And then like I got the acceptance letters back and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe these people are going to take me in law school. It's like the biggest joke, right? No, why? Because I'm like, you know, here I am. This I'm a I'm a musician, and then I'm I'm going to the, I'm working on the PhD, and I'm sort of wild and crazy, and I'm not, you know, I I don't I don't fit the mold for the person that you think is going to go to law school. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think back when I started law school, I thought there was a mold, but I think like speaking of aging and maturing, I think now I don't. I think there's so many people that break molds all the time. But I guess I didn't think of myself as the nerdy or, you know, I guess you kind of look at lawyers and you think like, oh, you know, like they must have middle or upper class parents and they always wanted to go to law school. And like, I, yeah, yeah. My mentor in the legal profession was Bill Schreiber and like his life, he wanted to be a lawyer since from like he was like in diapers, he wanted to be a lawyer. So I would tease him. I'm like, you always wanted to be a lawyer. So literally everything you did in your entire life was you wanted to be a lawyer. I'm like, did you ever smoke pot? And he's like, of course not. And I'm like, right, because you wanted to be a lawyer and you thought that lawyers don't smoke pot. And I'm like, let me tell you something. Everyone's smoking pot, man. <laughs> did you used to be a pothead? Who wasn't? I was never a pothead. <sighs> but you've smoked pot. I'm going to plead the fifth. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have. Because I remember I wrote about it in my diary and my mom read my diary. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's that's, the worst. that's terrifying. If you're listening, Mom, I'm still mad at you about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let me ask you this. Did, did you grow up in, you know, a middle class family? Did you grow up broke? Did you grow up with money? So my mom was a flight attendant. She was like back from the day when I was she was pregnant with me and like when she went on there was no so no such thing as maternity leave back then so she was technically fired wow isn't that amazing and then rehired um 
my dad uh, and no one, I was the first person on my mom's side of the family to ever go to college, male or female. And my father had a college degree. He was an accountant, not terribly successful, but he managed to have a job most of the time. So, you know, I would say that we were middle class and we always had a nice home. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't ever remember feeling like there was a tremendous amount of financial stress, even though I think my mom might disagree, but I think my mom had an inflated sense of what what she was entitled to in the world. <laughs> There's a lot of us that have that. <laughs> and she, I think she expected that it should come to her as opposed to what the real reality of what life was going to be. So you moved up to Jersey. Moved up to Jersey. Grandma sad to see you go. She was, and she continued. um, She sent me letters, which I also still have, all through college and grad school and law school, where she would write to me about the soap operas that that we used to watch together, and she would give me a narrative and send me a check for $100 every month. Aw, that's nice. Yeah, until I got married. (laughs) <laughs> She's like, it's his problem now. That's right. I was like, I called her. I'm like, I didn't get my letter. And she's like, well, you're married now. <laughs> so you, you could have got the letter, maybe not the check. I'm like, you don't have to send me the money. I'm like, but just put yeah. the letter every month. Aw, yeah. So moved to New Jersey, went to law school in Camden, met my husband, knocked me up. Where did you meet him? Because he was not That's a lawyer. the greatest secret that has ever not been told. Oh, so you okay. Like our daughter is desperate to know you how we met. Me? I just, can't. Just tell me. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, Madison's gonna listen to this now. So she's and she's funny too. Like she keeps sort of skulking around. She's like, oh, so you met, but I'm like, why is it a secret? Because it's just become like a game with Was her. he like a male stripper? No. <laughs> Although he is, he probably could have been. A male escort? <laughs> he probably could. My husband is very cute. So no, then we we eloped in Vegas, right? And that was it. I had Madison, my daughter, the Wednesday of spring break, our third year in law school. Yeah, you know, I'm remembering now that we were in law school at the same time. I don't know how I could possibly have forgotten that, I guess, because so much has happened since then. But yes, I remember you were the pregnant student. <laughs> and you, But you didn't take time off, right? I had her on a Wednesday, and I was back in class on Monday. That's crazy. And people were like, are you still pregnant? And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> And you're like, really? Do I look? You know what? I got to tell you one time, I worked at a dry cleaners when I was in high school and college. And there was this lady that would come in and she had been pregnant, but she had gained a lot of weight. And I asked her when, you know, so when are you due? You're getting close, right? And she just looked at me and said, I already had the baby and I thought I was going to die right there on the spot. But you can never say anything. I never, ever say anything like that now. I don't ask, are you pregnant? When are you due? (laughs) Nothing like that. If they want to volunteer, that's great. But I don't ask. So no, we had Madison. You know, again, just because I, I still, perhaps to this day, continue to have this lack of understanding why people say certain things at certain times. But people would say to me like, you know... Uh, how are you going to have a baby and take the bar? And I'm like, well, I have the whole summer off, right? I'm like, sorry, does your brain not work when you have a baby? <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'll just stay home with her 
And how difficult could it possibly be to take care of a baby and study for the bar exam? And so that's what I did. So everybody else took the Barbary or whatever it was or Kaplan review and they all went to the class all day, five days a week and studied for the bar. And I bought some books and I stayed at home. And then me and Giovanna had the long trek out to Pennsylvania and then up north and we we sat for both bars and... And I already accepted a clerkship to clerk in Monmouth County for, I think, the best judge that's ever judged. Who was your judge? Uh, judge Micheletti, Ben Micheletti. And uh, I love him to death. He was a wonderful mentor. Again, another perfect person that came along in my life at the right time. And I did the clerkship. And then I applied for jobs locally. And I got hired by Bill and Bernie. How did you find them? Did you have your eye on them? or? And, you know, I have to ask you, how did you end up in family law? I mean, did when did you decide that that's what you wanted to do? Oh, I, I decided that I wanted to do that. Did you? Yeah, I know how we say that it picks you. So I went to law school absolutely not going to do criminal defense work or family law. I knew for sure that those were the two areas of law that I had zero interest in whatsoever, and I absolutely 100% wanted to do tax law. That's yeah, And I that's took like different. every tax class in law school you can possibly imagine, okay? Did you like it? I love it. I still love it. So um, I, when I was pregnant and I was interviewing for jobs in North Jersey, I... I remember one day coming back from an interview in Newark and I had to stop like five times to pee and I'm like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not doing this. So I I looked for jobs locally uh, with the judges and I got the clerkship and then he was in the family part and he was like, you know, do you care? I'm like, I don't care. It's just a clerkship. I just want yeah. a job. Just give me a job, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when I was clerking, I sort of scoped out the attorneys that I thought were the best. And um, interestingly, it wasn't Bill that I liked, it was Bernie. And Bernie, I mean, like anybody who's listening who ever met Bernie Hoffman, you kind of know what I'm talking about. He's like, it was like this very charming older gentleman who at the time he had actually, his foot was in a cast. And so he was walking around with like a cane and he had like a hat and he would always wear like a long coat he was very like dapper and he was amazing he would come in he would make these phenomenal presentations to the court his paperwork even though it was typed like typed when i say typed like on a typewriter that is so funny 2000 we had computers by then right this was 2003 so it's not like you know 1975 um it's like on a typewriter so, so he had an older secretary, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> when he wasn't doing it. No. Um, that is so funny. So I sent my resumes out to, I don't know, maybe a dozen local firms. I got a bunch of interviews. And then Bill came into the courthouse one day to argue a motion. And he argued his motion in front of the judge. And again, if anybody ever saw Bill Schreiber argue a motion, he was amazing. I was speaking to him outside the courtroom. And he says, I have your resume on my desk. And then he proceeded to ask me very specific questions about some of the things that were on my resume. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but I would find out about less than a year later that when resumes would come in the office, they would go directly into the garbage. Really? In all the years that Bill and Bernie had been together, they had only had a handful of other lawyers that had ever even worked with them in the office. 
um, and I can list them, but so I won't. So how did they get yours? So I had sent them my resume. But Why I had didn't it go in the garbage? Because it was so fascinating. Um, and certain things just jumped off the page. Both of them were Jewish. So mm-hmm. a lot of the things that were on my resume were relating to my studies of Jewish history and so on and so forth. I mean, it's an interesting resume. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm not I'm not overly impressed with myself, but if I looked at the resume and it was somebody else's, I would think, oh, this is an interesting person. It's a, it would it's unusual. It's unusual. It's not on everyone's resume. It's not on anybody's resume. It's not like Spanish club and <laughs> right. lacrosse. Right. So they hired me. And the rest, they say, is history. And were you thinking like, oh, God, I'm still in family law? Yeah. Were you thinking, I'll just do this for a while until I figure something out? No. I absolutely had no intention of ever leaving that job for the rest of my career. Really? I had, I was settled. I literally went in and Mike and I painted my office before I started working there. Was it like, pink? No. It, the colors in this room right here, these are the colors. Like a beigey brownie? These are the color. exact colors. Just for people that are... Every busy. office I've had since then... It's butter pecan and vanilla. In every single office building I have been in, I have painted a room the same two colors as Why? my original office because it makes me feel like I'm back in my original office. Aw, so you, you are nostalgic. You of course. You have memories. So why did you leave there? What happened? Like, I don't, if there's a story behind it, I don't know. You can share whatever you want to share. I think it was a little bit of, I like to describe it as a, a fit of spite, but somehow subconsciously I knew that it was a change that needed to be made in my life. Not because, and let me say this, it's not normal in the practice of law to feel like, you know, like some kinship to your law partners, right? Yeah. Most people, they're just sort of like in business and, you know, maybe you're at a big firm or whatever. There's 100 people, maybe there's five people, but you don't feel like they're family. So, like, I really felt like Bill and Bernie were my family. And so it was very painful for me to leave them. But some things happened and, um, you know, it was just, I again, I just was like, I'm I'm done. And I just just literally just the words came out of my mouth and then I was like, frick. I went home and I said to Mike, I'm like, oh, I think I just dissolved my partnership. And because yeah, you were a partner, right? Were you an equity partner? I was. And I not only was I an equity partner, but I was out producing them. Bernie was technically retired at the time, but he was still probably generating maybe a hundred thousand. If you added up what the two of them were generating and doubled it, that's what I was bringing into the business. So, and I don't want to get into the weeds about all of that, but I mean, is aren't there ways sometimes to work around those things? Like, you know, eat what you kill kind of thing or... That's not the way we did it. And that's not the way I've ever felt was an appropriate way to do it, even if the balance of power, if you will, wasn't exactly fair. So it's... The reason why now I'm not, I, I don't want a partner because either that person is going to be my equal or they're not. I don't believe in having a partner that's not a true equal. Well, aren't there times though when you're equal and then times when you're not? Like, how can you be continuously equal? 
If you're talking about in terms of revenue generating? It's not just, I mean, I think if I felt that maybe the revenue was compensated someplace else, I'd be okay with that. But I don't know how to strike that balance perfectly. So in the absence of that, I'm contented to just find myself. And I, I don't want to be in charge. I don't have any great like passion for being the leader of the team or whatever, but I'll do it in the absence of having what I want. Yeah. So, so when you left, you went on your own. I went on my own. Did you think at that point that maybe having a partner just wasn't something you wanted to do? Yes. You did. So you were on your own for how long? Like a year. Okay. So I don't think it's a big secret to people who know us that my current partner <laughs> is my former John partner. Montlinger. Yes, was your former partner. And we're not going to get into that out of respect for John because he's not sitting here. Well, we don't have anything bad to say. No, about there's John. no, there's nothing bad to say, but I just feel like that's his business. So yeah, I'm no, gonna... I mean, John and I were partners for a short period of time and it didn't work out. And I think he's a great guy and he's, he's sent me cases and I've sent him cases since then. And I think he's one of the best lawyers in the state, quite frankly. Thank you. I think he is too. No, I mean, for anybody who's listening, I I don't, there's not some salacious story right, that we're going to talk <laughs> no. about, right? Like, well, John did this. No, and no. And did that. And <laughs> it just, honestly, it's just, it just didn't, it wasn't the right mix. And that's, yeah. I, and I, 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 I believe that. It, I'm not making it up. I'm not trying to force it. I, yeah. It just wasn't, um, it wasn't a good fit. And that's fine. Um, and I'm glad that we recognized that when we did. Uh-huh. And that he was able to go on and do something that's good for him. I'm very happy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I, I don't, I want everybody to do great. It's kind of like a divorce. I, I always wonder why people think that when you get a divorce that someone has to be bad or wrong or, you know, they have to hate each other. And I know that's, a little different relationship, a little more complicated. But I always say jokingly that, and and I don't think it really. It's it, I think it's true that when you partner with somebody, it's kind of a marriage. So you know Ed Weinstein, yes, who we all just you know we all loved, and he passed not too long ago. So when Bill and I were dissolving the partnership, I called Ed, and um, he and Jessica, his ex wife, they divorced and split up, dissolved their business at the same time. And I called him and I told him he was the only one that knew what was going on. And I asked him how he did it. And I asked him what to do and how to draw it up. And I said to him, you did it. And like, nobody even knew. It was like, poof, all of a sudden, one day her name is off the sign. I've never heard you say anything bad about her. I've never heard her say anything bad. That's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. That's the disillusion that I want, right? Yeah. And that's what I, both times, both times. I think actually when you go around bad-mouthing somebody, especially let's say you're married and you go around bad-mouthing your husband or your wife, I always think, yeah, but you were the dummy that was married to them. So what does that say about you? Of course. (laughs) And that's why it's like, to me, it's crazy. It's like, so if I'm going to, not that I I can think of anything bad necessarily to say about John, but like, if I'm going to say bad things about him, like, what does that say about my character that I chose him to make him a part of my universe in that uh, intimate a way? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, it may be a little bit different with Bill and Bernie. They picked me, if you will, and and groomed me. And I learned over time and I, I learned things that were good and I learned the things that were bad and I made changes. And now, you know, there's five attorneys working in my office, including myself. And, you know, I'm doing very well. I'm not saying I would never have a partner again. I'm just saying that I know what I personally need to be there. And I haven't found it yet. So I have to, I don't know why I'm drawing parallels between having a business partner and being married. I guess, I don't know, like, do you see some similarities? Like when you're at home? Like, could you be a business partner with your husband? No. (laughs) No. It's different, though, because you're in love. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's part of it. Part. And I mean, listen, and I say this somewhat tongue in cheek and somewhat seriously, but I don't really like lawyers that much. So I don't want a lawyer in my bedroom. OK, <laughs> like it's bad enough that I'm with lawyers all day. Like, I don't want to go home to a lawyer. We only need one person in the house that's like a pushy, difficult, argumentative know-it-all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, I, I see there are we know a lot of people that are couples and in practice together. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I that I people do that. Yeah, that one I, I really can't. I mean, some people would say, but we it's not like we're together all day long. You know, she's doing her thing. I'm doing my thing over here. But I, I don't I don't think I could do that. I don't think I would want to do that. No, I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to do that. And I. I think you need to have separation. You know, you need like family law, which is primarily, you know, it's really all I do. But we we have a criminal practice in the office now, but it's so hard. Um, And as you know, I get the really, really bad cases anyway. Like other attorneys send me the cases, even if there's tons of money, they send me cases that they don't want to litigate because of whatever, the client is difficult, the spouse is difficult, the case is a train wreck. It's high conflict. High conflict. So those they don't bother me, those cases at all. So you know that about yourself. Oh, yeah. That someone will call me like, I'll be like, John, <laughs> this is high conflict. I can't take this. And Who are we going to send it to? Let's send it to Amy. Good idea. I'm going to send it to Amy. And I, I hope that people don't think that they're punishing me. <laughs> By sending me these cases, because I think I do a very good job of managing uh, high conflict clients and getting them to a point where they understand where they may be the problem and getting them to the point where even if we're three or four days into a trial, we can settle the case. Because that's always the ultimate goal. I mean, I I don't consider trying a case to be a failure. But I do consider not making every human effort to settle a case to be a failure. Would you? How would you describe your litigation style? Because you look, we talked about this before we turned the mics on. Like you know that you have a reputation for being difficult, right? Or being maybe difficult's not the word. Being, I don't want to give away too much of the the behind the, the scenes strategy. <laughs> I mean, listen, if anybody takes me that seriously then they need to come and have a beer with me (laughs) I don't take myself that seriously and people that know me very well understand what I'm up to is this your strategy are you like I'm gonna be such a bitch that they're just gonna want this to be over 
that's my life like mantra is I am going to make you do something for me and you're going to hate doing it, but you're going to do it because you just want to get rid of me. Are you a secret dominatrix? (laughs) (laughs) No, but you know what? Sometimes, and I'll make it a little political. So like we don't understand sometimes that there is really fundamentally just a right way to do things and a right way to interact with people. And there seems to be sometimes this idea that the right way to convince people to go along with you is to hug them and make them your friend and try and talk to them and try and make them understand and, you know, sing kumbaya and hug trees and all of this happy horse shit, okay? Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that more often than not, the best way to get someone to understand how ignorant or foolish or racist or bigoted or misogynistic they are being is to humiliate them and degrade them or bully them in the same way that they are bullying somebody else because they all, they're never going to understand until they're the recipient of that behavior. Speak their language. More than speak their language. Put them into the circumstance that they put others. It's about learning how to read people, right? It's about understanding where people's triggers based on the psychological profile. And so I'm like a bit of a, a profiler, if you will. But once I get somebody, like, I really know how to, you know, and my adversaries will tell me all the time, like, oh, my client hates hates you. And, you know, he just thinks that you're you're just trying to destroy him and, and this and that. And I'm and like, you're like, but I am. I'm like, good. <laughs> you but know? how does that settle the case? I mean, is your goal to get it settled? The goal is to settle it. But you have to understand that the cases that I get oftentimes are against a, a litigant who will not settle the case until they are forced to. It could be that I, I get them on the stand and I trap them. It could be that I have to get a custody evaluation and I've set them up to sort of walk into the evaluation and just destroy themselves while making a very positive case for my client. So why do you enjoy that? I don't know. It's entertaining. Something to do. So if you just got like a garden variety divorce, (laughs) you know. I don't do them anymore. Wife is a teacher. (laughs) They go to the associates. She wears cardigan sweaters. (laughs) Dad is uh, a CPA. He's got a nice little office and they don't need me. They don't need you. They need one of the other attorneys in the office, you know? And and I have great attorneys that work here. So you would find that boring. It's like not, if you're not going to war. It's not it's that boring. I would find it boring. It's that I am very good at doing a particular thing and I can do it and other people can't because not everybody can engage in that level of conflict. I don't mind doing it. Sometimes because that's my reputation, for me to go in on a sort of garden variety divorce case, it makes the case appear as if it's something that it's really not. And so it doesn't serve the litigants or their children to have me handling the case primarily when it's really a garden variety, mm-hmm. you know, sort of simple divorce. Now, I'll mediate those cases. I mediate cases all the time. I'll manipulate behind the scenes and strategize on the cases here in the office, but I always call myself the big bad. Like, you don't need the big bad. The big bad. (laughs) You know, you don't need, 
you don't need me going in there, you know, acting like a crazy person. Well, I always say that, and, and it's not true in every case, but I think people that grew up around in a chaotic environment have a higher threshold for that, like like I did. You know, I have a higher threshold for just dysfunction in a chaotic environment just because it's a little bit familiar to me. Do you Did you grow up in a chaotic environment or did you have exposure to that? So... This is the Allison Williams conversation. So for those of you who don't know, Allison and I are best friends. Allison is the best lawyer in the entire world, right? I always say if I am on trial for I murder, heard, I listen to the you're interview. You're doing it. <laughs> you're doing it. I say that to her too. <laughs> I also tell her that she's going to represent my husband in the divorce case because... <laughs> because he's going to need her. Um, but no, so Allison and I have this conversation all the time, and I know she shares uh, her her family woes. I, I don't quite as much, but my mother was not the nicest person in the whole world. And like, I, I give examples. Like, she would say things to me like, you you have to wear a lot of moisturizer on your face because your skin is not as nice as mine. Uh, like now or when you were younger? Like at, until she died, until like until the day oh, she died, oh, she would yeah. say things like that to me. So constant criticism. Constant criticism. And what was your reaction to that? I would just be like, whatever, right? And at, at some point, I would get frustrated with her, and I would argue with her, and it would not get anywhere, and then we wouldn't talk for a couple of weeks, and then we would be back in the same cycle because mm-hmm. we all believe that regardless of how toxic the person is in your existence, if it's your parent, then you yes. need to have a relationship with mm-hmm. them, right? So yeah. I, don't, I don't need a therapist to tell me all of this. Like, yeah. I, got, I, I got it, right? Mm-hmm. I, I know what the issue is. So to your point, right? I married my husband. Oh my God, I married this this Goyesha, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Nazi, right? Like my mother would at one point accused me of trying to finish Hitler's work oh my God. by marrying a German and not raising my child as a Jew. And therefore, I was just as bad as the other Nazis. So like... That's really extreme. Are you an only child? So, you know, I always say, like, there's nothing that somebody is going to say to me that is as bad as what my mother used to say to me. So, you know, what do you get? Like, what? A judge is going to rule against me? Like, I'm not going to I'm not going to run out to my car and cry. Right. Um, You know, I'm going to get yelled at on the record. So what? Um, You know, clients yell at me. Clients curse at me. Clients curse. Tell me names like that. Those are the cases that I get. Other attorneys don't want to deal with that. Other attorneys don't want their clients yelling and screaming at them in high conflict cases. And I'm literally, those are some of the cases that I get. And you know what? It doesn't bother me because at the end of the month, I send them a bill and they pay it. And if they don't pay it, then I fire them because uh-huh. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to have somebody think that they can speak to me like that and then not pay yeah. for yeah, right. for my services. For that. <laughs> That's right. But, but because... Because it doesn't bother me to the same degree that it bothers other people, I am able to actually make progress in getting through to people that other people wouldn't be able to. So yeah. it's it's somewhat of a unique skill set. 
And then I go home and I have the best daughter in the whole world and I have the best little boy in the whole world and my husband is totally freaking awesome. And I go and I have my nice little existence and I, you know, I don't let all that other stuff bother me. Hmm, That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. A lot of people can't do that. I mean, I definitely feel like over the years, I've, my tolerance has gotten much lower dealing with just difficult divorces. I mean, even the average divorce now, I don't want to do. And that's just it. The the run-of-the-mill divorce is already difficult because you're dealing with people who are just emotional, okay? They're, yeah. They could be the best people in normal circumstances, but when you tell them that you're going to have to sell your house and give away half of your retirement and split up half the time or more with of the kids, and it's difficult. I mean, it's hard to sit in an office with somebody and they they cry, you know? Where they tell you about their sex life, or they they've lost a What's child. Wrong with that? <laughs> oh God, I please, I I just I really don't want to hear about any. Like I don't care. Like do whatever you want to do, just don't tell me about it. But you know, people lost a child, or they have children with special needs, or all of these other things, and it's just that sort of almost run of the mill stuff that you deal with. That's really bad. Mm-hmm. Then you throw someone who's an actual narcissist into the mix. Not like, oh, my husband is a narcissist yeah, just because everyone. he's mean. Or yeah. someone who is legitimately the victim of domestic violence who has been beaten repeatedly or raped by their, by their husband in their own home, in their own bed. You know, that's just not stuff that most lawyers can tolerate. And they certainly can't tolerate it to the degree where I, like, I, I'll have 15 cases that could be described by there's a narcissist on one side, somebody's been raped, you have a child with special needs, or they've lost a child to whatever. Like every single one of my cases involves some kind of an extreme element. Yeah, those are heavy. So how did you, did it just kind of evolve over time that you started getting these cases and people started sending them off to you? Yeah. Do you actually, I've heard, I've heard the urban legend, it might be true. Do you send glitter bombs? So do you know who Jim Udis is? Yes. Okay, I'm going to tell you the best story ever. So I do send glitter bombs. The The best the best uh, glitter bombs that we've sent were several years ago, we sent glitter bombs to all of the Republicans in the Senate, and we sent penis glitter to um, Mitch McConnell. Okay? Oh, my God. It's true. That was the best day ever in the office. So, but um, you don't get to see the result. It just gives you pleasure knowing that, that oh, there's there's like there's like 200 Republican interns that are cursing my name, okay, which just makes me infinitely happy. So we had a case with uh, Jim Udis. Actually, John referred the case to me. Okay, I'll have to ask you <laughs> later who that was. I think I know who it might have been. So uh, Jim Udis, uh, if I have a, a reputation for being a difficult adversary, Jim Udis... He's like me on crack, okay? Really? He's very, very difficult to have as an adversary. Very brilliant, brilliant man, very good lawyer, very, very difficult to deal with. So I posted, we have a New Jersey family lawyers group, which I use oftentimes to sort of engage in a little bit of psychological warfare with people, whether they realize it or not. But I posted in there, um, should I glitter bomb Jim Udis? And somebody, probably one of his associates, forwarded him a screenshot of me having this post, which he then attached to a letter to Judge Sheedy 
in Monmouth County, okay? Up, upset, right, that I was going to glitter bomb his office. So we're in- I feel like if that was me, I would have just sent you a glitter bomb first. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but the story really speaks volumes as to like what I'm up to in the universe. So we're in chambers one day. And he's he is uh, he cannot get past this glitter bomb thing. And I I at that point I'm just I'm just hysterical laughing every time he brings it up. Okay, so Judge Sheedy is sitting there listening to him, and she's like, you know, we had to look up what a glitter bomb was. <laughs> and she just well, looked over to me, and then that was that was basically the end of it. So then, I don't know, maybe a year later. Mary Beth, the, one of the attorneys in my office, is going to court to argue a motion in the same case against Jim. And I say to her, here, let me give you a pound of glitter and put it in your bag. And when you get to counsel's table, what I want you to do is put your bag down on its side and make it so that the glitter just sort of protrudes from your bag <laughs> so that he can see it, okay? And then while he's arguing... I want you to like just push it, you know, so that it he he feels like you're intruding on him with the glitter. And she did. She took it to court what? and she's like he was he kept looking at it the whole time. I said, he's probably like what is she going to do with that? Yeah. I said, "Well, you got him. You had him so off of his game because of a stupid bag he was of distracted. glitter the whole time." But I feel like they're you're a little evil though. There's a little evilness in there, right? <laughs> If you could see Amy's face right now. Listen, if we can't, especially with when it's other, like if we can't have a little bit of fun with each other, what the hell are we doing? The legal profession is so serious and so stuffy. It is. It is. Um, it's just, I mean, I, as you know, I have been pushing the envelope of what is acceptable as a lawyer for many years and you know now even go when I walk into court and it's a judge that I've never appeared in front of I can't even begin to describe to you the power of knowing that the entire time that I'm making my argument the only thing that they can think about is the fact that I have fluorescent pink hair and how badly they want to comment about my hair and they know that they can't they're probably like what is that all about yeah why is she why does she have pink hair and who's hiring her? <laughs> who's Who wants to hire an attorney that has pink hair? So now that we're on that subject, how? why the pink hair? And did you ever worry that, you know, maybe it'll turn some potential clients off? Maybe it won't be good for business. So as I evolved over the years, what I found was that People would be referred to me and they would have been told um, some take on the following. She's completely brilliant. She's the best lawyer you're ever going to meet. She will run circles around the adversary. She's relentless. She's brutal. She's this. She's a bitch. She's whatever. And she is a complete weirdo. And so people would come in. And I would be like, yeah, you know, I mean, like, I'm a little unconventional. They're like, we, we know. We were warned, you know? Wow, that's so funny. But those are word of mouth referrals. Yeah. Is that where you get most of your business? Anything that 
any case that I'm going to personally handle, yes. But yeah, most of the, the firm business is personal referrals. So the garden variety people are, they're meeting other people anyway. They're not meeting with you. Are they, they are, but you know what? They don't care either. Yeah. Because my whole approach to the practice of law and the approach that I insist that my attorneys take is to be real human beings. I get that there is a particular class of clients that's going to want an attorney in a three-piece suit Mm -hmm. sitting in a serious colored office who dictates to their secretary and, you know, has somebody else bring coffee. Yeah, probably an old white guy, too, with white hair, gray hair. Listen, even those guys aren't bothered by me. But the reality is, is that when people are coming in to talk to you about their kids and their money and their house or domestic violence or child abuse or any of these other things that we deal with as family lawyers, they want somebody who they can talk to, okay? They want somebody who they feel understands them and is going to relate to them and share a little bit too. So. It doesn't turn the high-end clients off for me either because I also have the reputation of being like, you know, whatever people say, crazy smart or, you know, whatever. I mean, I've got all the the stupid accreditations, but that's not necessarily the case that I'm getting. I'm getting the case where there's something really complicated or somebody else really messed it up and it needs to be fixed. So, you know... So what do you see for your practice? Are you happy with what you're doing now? Do do you have a vision for your firm? So we recently added a criminal group to the practice. And I'm taking fewer cases than I have taken in the past. I sort of cherry picking cases, if you will. Although I still do a lot of trials, that's fine. I don't mind doing the trials so much. I'm just not taking as as big a caseload generally. But what I am trying to do now and what I have been uh, focused on is doing like mediating high conflict cases. I mediate domestic violence cases, guardian ad litem work. I'm taking cases actually on a sliding scale so that more, you know, we we have a wonderful rule about appointing a guardian ad litem in cases, right? And we never do it because it's so expensive to appoint a guardian. And instead, people end up spending yeah. like an obsess- like a crazy amount of money on custody evaluations and motion practice and litigation. So I said, you know what? I'm, the business is doing very well. The practice is doing well. I can offer my services for maybe a little bit less. And then more cases can have an experienced lawyer as a guardian You don't have to go get a custody evaluation. You've got somebody who can speak directly to everyone. You have a lot of power under the guardian rule. It's actually pretty interesting that there's not a guardian in every divorce case. Because a long time ago, I thought, shouldn't there really be? So in other states, they actually have like court, like that's your job is to serve as a guardian ad litem. And you get paid for it by the, the court system. We don't have that in New Jersey. So I'm trying to somewhat backdoor that into the system by offering my services at a reduced rate, like a sliding scale. Yeah. How do you do that? Do you have a a formula that you're going to employ? You do. Yeah. So, and anybody can just call the office and find out what it is so that they can, uh, you know, it's based on the combined income of the parties. 
And then they just say, okay, fine, we're hiring you. And here's the rate that you've already fixed. And there it is. I can't help it. I, you know, I have my lawyer brain is always on. I'm thinking combined income. So then are they going to fight over what's the income? But he has a business and are there ad backs? And is there this and that? And he's unemployed. And I mean, they can, but, you know, the idea is that there's somebody who's supposed to be there to help you. So at least get Yeah, well, you're the one who that, gets to decide. Right. I mean, get to that point where you have a third party with the experience and accreditations as opposed to, you know. Yes, yeah. And honestly, if someone needs a guardian or a parent coordinator, well, it's probably a high conflict case. And that's just it. So I've had over the years, I've gotten appointed in cases which are very, very high conflict. Now, I can do non-high conflict cases. It's not that I'm, mm-hmm. you know, everybody everybody kind of thinks of me as being the high conflict person. But because I know that level of conflict, I also know how to manage everything along the scale. So exactly. I mean, parenting coordination is... Sometimes I look at my cases and I'm like, I wish you guys had me as a parenting coordinator because I could resolve all of this conflict for you. Why do you think that people have such a strong reaction to you? Because I push people's buttons intentionally. I make people think about themselves and the world in a way that they don't want to. And I'm always doing it. Were you always like that? Ever since I was little born this way perhaps but I mean I don't know that that's such a bad thing mm-hmm. and to me it's it's entertaining oh I can't think of the guy's name there's a guy he lives Sam from law school I don't know what his last name is it's not coming to me but I remember we were sitting at you know the bar we all used to go to in uh, Camden I commuted. I was a night nice student, so I never went to any of the bars. So I don't know. We were sitting at the bar one night, and he was—he just wanted to fight about gun control, okay? And so he just kept arguing with me, having made the assumption that I was against the Second Amendment or something. And he was like, well, you know, this is why we need guns and this. And I said, okay, fine. You want to argue with me about this? Fine. So we'll argue about it. So I took the side that he thought that I agreed with. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then at the end of the conversation, I said to him, I'm like, you know, I basically grew up in the South around guns and I don't have a problem with individual gun ownership. And he was like, but you just sat here and argued with me for an hour. And I said, of course, because that's what you wanted to do. But yeah, now, you're right, he did. Right. I said, yeah. but now you'll think twice before you just assume that somebody is against your position. And maybe you'll ask the question next time before you waste all of that energy fighting with me. On the flip side, though, not just to push people's buttons, sometimes somebody needs to just speak up for the, the underdog, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm that person, right? When other people are afraid to get into the mix and to yell and to, to fight for a cause or to fight for a person... That's just who I am, naturally. Yeah, you definitely have that uh, that chip. <laughs> it's not a bad thing, though. I mean, there are people that need, there's the, even the high-conflict divorces need representation. There has to be somebody that will step in. And there has to be somebody who can speak to an issue Someone and, who can be effective. and But also do it from a point of intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, so 
in my life since I learned that I was having a little girl, I have become, as you know, an outspoken feminist, never before thinking of myself in that way. But now just sort of shouting at anybody who will listen to me about women's sovereignty, as I like to call it. Uh And uh, part of the reason why I do some of the things that I do is because a woman who is as assertive as I am is not really assertive, but I'm, I'm just a bitch. A man who would act in the same way that I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a recurring theme in my podcast is how, and, and it's, I always, it's really terrible because when I bring it up, I feel like I have to preface it with, I'm not being a man hater because then if I talk about it, you know, there will be people that think, oh, here we go. You know, she said the F word of feminism. And although I guess that's not really my audience, so they probably wouldn't think that, but it's really too bad that we're, we're still having this conversation. I- I taught my son, who's now six, instead of calling it underwear, he calls it panties. Really? (laughs) Oh, man. So everybody was losing their mind when I would say panties to him, right? Even Mary Beth, my associate, she was like, you can't call them panties. Like, you he's a boy, right? He'll figure it out eventually that other people call it something else. And I'm like... What difference does it make, right? It doesn't. It doesn't. Well, they, in England, they call them pants. Okay. But let him say, I have to put my panties on, right? And maybe, and it's so cute, but maybe 30 or 40 years from now, we'll stop assigning color, right? Pink and blue. Yeah. Pink and blue. So to your point and to your question... What is with all of this pink stuff, right? Women are assigned this color from before they're born, right? And it's not to be a color of power. It is to be a color of oppression. So why are you wearing pink then? Because I have owned it and I have repurposed it and I have made it a powerful color And I use it to shock the conscience of people. And I use it to make people question their normal understanding of what it means to be pink. It's not my favorite color. What's your favorite color? (laughs) Black. Of course. Oh, of course. You had black walls. Of course. Remember the black walls. So where did you, I guess you just answered the question. You have a pink Maserati. I do. And drives people crazy. I mean, I've never heard anybody specifically say anything about it, but you know, there's, I don't know that there's another pink Maserati anywhere. <laughs> you must get a lot of attention in a pink Maserati. Of course. Oh, when you have your, don't you have your branding have on the side? the branding side? on the side. People stare at it all the time. Um, it takes a particular personality to know that people are going to be staring at you all the time with everything that you're doing. And now I've kind of gotten to the point where it's like when people aren't staring at me, I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? Like what happened? Yeah. Well, well, that's kind of interesting because when we first started this conversation, you said I didn't want to be on a stage. Right. But you kind of are on a stage. I didn't want to be on a stage and have to have the stress 
of performing at the level of perfection that I thought I had to. And as I've gotten older, what I've learned is that I don't, what I think is perfection, nobody else could give two shits about, okay? Mm-hmm. And so because I am fearless, and that's really like, I'm not mean, I'm not overly aggressive, I'm not, I'm just, I, I literally approach the world without any fear whatsoever. And I always have. You must be afraid of something. No. I'm a, maybe I'm afraid of losing my children. Mm-hmm. That would be it. That, that's the only thing that ever causes me any, like, you know, any level of being upset. But nothing scares me. You've spent a lot of time in your life being alone. Like you said you were lonely in Florida. I mean, maybe you don't feel like this great need to, you know, have an entourage. Like being lonely to some people or being alone to some people is, is, is terrifying. Correct. It doesn't bother me. But if you're not afraid of that, then I I would think that that affects your decision-making and behavior. It's, I agree. It's true. I mean, I I have a small group of friends. I've always just had a very small group of friends. And I do a lot of activities that are very solitary. I think that I don't see anything wrong with that. I actually think there's a lot of people that have this terrible fear of being alone. How many people do you know will not go out alone to a restaurant? Or the best, I think, is a movie. Yeah, and I was going to say there's no, I'm being presumptuous assuming that you don't have that problem. I love going out to dinner by myself. I'll sit at the bar. I have sat at a table, but I usually sit at the bar. And I love going to the movies by myself. I'm so sad that we can't go to the movies right now. I love going to the movies by myself. I don't get to go as much as I I would like, but James had been going, my son James and I have been going to the movies a lot. Um, And we actually saw, like Sonic, we saw twice in the theater together. He's like, let's go see Sonic again. I'm like, okay. So he just got to the point where he can like sit through an entire movie. So we had been doing that a lot lately. I love going to the movies. Yeah, I miss it. I, I'm looking forward to the movies opening again. When I first moved to California, it's it's funny the things that you remember. The Remember the movie The Doors with Val Kilmer? Yes. So that movie had just come out, and it was in the theaters, and I had moved to California in high school. I didn't know anybody. And I went to the movies by myself, and I was like a teenager, right, which is – bizarre, right? You know, so here I am, this teenager going to the movies by herself. And I sit down in the theater and there's a curtain in front of the screen. And at the beginning of the movie, the curtain opens up. And I was like, wow, I had never been to a movie before where they had a curtain in front of the screen. I'm like, this is so fucking cool. It's Cal, like we're in LA, right? And I watched this movie on the big screen by myself and it was wonderful. And I had the best time. And so, yeah, after that, like, I had no problem. I love that. I love that. You've not, you haven't really said anything about your relationship with your dad. I feel like we're in an epic, like, uh, therapy session. <laughs> I mean, my parents, my mom and my dad, like, I sometimes I wonder if it was really their intention to have children. <laughs> oh, you have a sibling. Yeah. So I have a younger brother. I don't speak to him at all. Um, So 
I don't really consider him to be like my sibling anymore because he did some uh, things that were not appropriate. My dad, I don't really even know how to describe my dad. He really liked having a son. And both of my parents, I think, also felt that I should just find a nice Jewish doctor and get married. Be an MRS. So you feel like even despite all of your accomplishments, you still managed to disappoint them. Um, I don't know that I disappointed them so much as they just didn't know what to do with me. They didn't get you. Yeah. And that's okay. I mean, I don't feel like my life was so horrible because my parents yeah. were yeah. not like, I'm, I sometimes see other people who are really close with their parents uh-huh. and I think, oh, that would be so nice. Uh-huh. And I work really hard to have that relationship with my kids because I don't want them to ever feel like I wasn't their cheerleader, you know? Yeah. So, and and it's a, it's a balancing act because it's like you're sort of balancing between do you spoil, are you spoiling them or are you being a parent or are you being a friend or are you, you know, mm-hmm. where you kind of add in the mix. And so I'm, I'm trying to constantly adjust and maneuver what I'm doing with them. But my major issue is that I don't want to be my parents because I just don't feel like uh, they were ever people that I could rely upon, you know, and especially as I became an adult. And that's really a shame to not, you know, it's to kind of be like alone in the universe, to your point, you know, it's like... What about your grandmother? I mean, I had her until she passed, Mm -hmm. you know. I loved having her around, and I would call her almost every day. It's one of the reasons why when my daughter was young, I strongly encouraged her to have a relationship with her grandparents because I think I sort of felt like even if she grew up someday and hated me, right, like I would Happens know. Happens sometimes with daughters. It does, you know. Or even if she went through a, spe- a, a phase mm-hmm. where she totally hated me, at least she would have her grandparents to go to. And I wanted her to have that relationship with them so that there would always be somebody, you know, sort of within a degree of relation that I knew would guide her back in the right direction. If she didn't come to me. Mm-hmm. But it seems like you have a good relationship with her. Maybe you? too good. You know, like some of the things she tells us, it's like. You're like, I don't need to hear this. I just. <laughs> but who do you lean on? I mean, there, there are so many strong people out there that they're strong for everyone else. But sometimes you need somebody. No, not really. Oh, stop, Amy. Come on. Who Do you have one person? So, I mean, I have been, uh, and I don't use the term frequently or uh, or without putting a tremendous amount of emotion behind it, but I have been completely blessed in my existence with having two women who are just the complete rock of my existence. So Elizabeth, my best friend who passed many years ago now, like 13 years ago it's been, and Allison. Mm -hmm. And I don't, and I say this all the time, like I have no idea what I did in the universe to deserve these two people in my life. But they have literally been there since I was a small child. I met Liz when I was 10. 
she passed when we were in our 30s and I've known Allison since 2003 and of course the the funny part of the story with Allison is we were at Florida State at the same time yes I know she's got that connection to Florida and um and we didn't know, we each, didn't other. know each other and then she went to law school at Syracuse which is where Bill Schreiber went mm-hmm. she was actually like uh, sort of friendly with him before she was friendly with me but I've known Alice. Allison and I started in practice at the same time. And even though, and I, it's funny, I listened to the podcast with her and she's like, I'm the first female blackboard certified attorney in the state. And I'm also the youngest. And I, and then I'll poke her when we're, when we're in front of people and I'll be like, yes, but we were board certified at the same time. So we both were the same number of years. We were the, not only was she the youngest in the state, but we both applied at five years. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets it at five years. Like mm-hmm. that's the minimum threshold. So I'm like, the same number of years in practice and I got into the academy before you did so your first black female youngest okay it is accurate it is an accurate <laughs> statement I'm like you've got all of these adjectives well there you have it Allison Williams if you are listening <laughs> what do you have to say <laughs> so I'm, I will be I will be interviewing Allison too I've already interviewed her several times for, for different things but I asked her to do the hashtag Femesquire series, and she said yes. Yeah, Allison is uh, Allison's amazing. So I have her, and we have our like morning power hour in the car when we'll call her on my way into work and just complain. And she now sort of litigates vicariously through me. She's very open with everybody, but like she's just even more amazing than what people know of her publicly. And you know her privately as well, and you've known her for a very long time. Yeah, so I have her, which is important, and I have Mike, who's, you know... husband. There is no... Anybody who tells you that their marriage is always, like, roses and unicorns is just just blowing smoke up your ass. That's true. That's just a lie. It's just stupid. So I don't ever want people to think that things are perfect, however... I somehow managed to end up with somebody who was perfect for me. You know, we're happy. We're contented. So looking back on your life and, you know, including today, would you say that the people that really get you, Allison and Mike, and your friend that passed? Yeah. What about your grandma? Yeah, she would love this too because, you know, She's one of these women who, you know, think about it. 1945, she's 18 years old, right? Mm -hmm. So think about it generationally. I think sometimes she looked at me and she said, wow, wouldn't it be neat if I could do all the things that Amy is doing, right? Like, you know, she loved her husband and she loved her children. But I think that there was like a little bit of a wild hair you know, and she never got to to be that person just because of the time that she was in. And so, yeah, sometimes I wonder if we could spring ahead like 100 years and just see what the world is like. Are those women going to look back on us and think, oh, I wish if only they could have done, you know, X, Y, and Z. I don't even know what those things would be. But We're doing right now as many challenges as we still have collectively as women and as many pieces of glass that we still have to break. We're so amazing and we lose sight of it sometimes. 
and we lose sight of the power that we have because of it. You know, there's so many things that I could not have done in my life. And again, just sort of circling back to the point of like, people would say to me things like, how are you going to have a baby and practice law? How are you going to do this and and be a mom? And how are you going to run a business and do this? And how are you? And, and referencing back to my gender. And I would just look at them and I would be like, why can't I do it just because I'm a, like, what, where, where is it on my body that makes it impossible for me to do these things? And I never saw my gender as a barrier, even though everyone else around me would see it as a barrier. So, you know, what is the point that I'm making with all the pink? It's like, what, what, the, what the fuck does anybody care what I look like, right? Mm-hmm. What yeah. difference does it make? Yeah. If I'm good or I have the the spark to be good, then go after that person and encourage it and and foster it and and teach it and you know and raise it up. Well, I think that people who are disturbed by it, maybe they should think about why it bothers them so much because it must it has to trigger something in them. Like whatever it is, you know, why can't it why does it even have to be a thought in your head? like why does she have to drive around in a pink car? Who cares? What, why are you even thinking about it? It's, it's triggering something in you, right? That's what I think. And maybe you need to explore why is this bothering me so much? So the best analogy I think to this, is, I've seen this as like one of these memes on the, on the internet, and it's the pie analogy, right? Uh-huh. Like you don't, it, it's, it's not a fucking pie. You don't eat the slice and then, and then it's gone, right? Yes. And I think that people feel and and it's it's partially about gender, but it could be about race, it could be about color, whatever it is, religion, whatever. I think that people feel that if one group rises up uh-huh. a little bit, uh-huh. then another group has to come down. And that's not the truth. Uh-huh. It's not a reality. I don't have to be successful to your detriment. We can both be successful. And I say this to lawyers all the time, right? I want every lawyer in this state to make a million dollars a year, $5 million a year, Mm -hmm. okay? I want everyone to have the best practice out there. I do. I want every lawyer to be successful. I want every lawyer to be able to provide great quality legal services. I want want everyone to do good. I really do, Mm -hmm. okay? I don't feel like your business doing well is going to make my business not do well. And it's comes from, I think, that whole sense of like, I feel secure with who I am. I don't feel intimidated by other people. I'm not afraid of things. Fear is always at the heart of all of this. Yeah, that's true. 100%. 100%. People, people fear losing control, losing money, losing status. It's all grounded in the fear. Yeah, you're right about that. And it's all in their mindset. If they think there's not enough to go around, then that's how they will think is that, well, if Amy or the guy down the street has a lot, then that means I can't Correct. because there's not enough. And it's hard to, to convince people to get out of that mindset. But interestingly enough, it's what divorce lawyers do all day, every day. So being cognizant of that and helping people understand that, you know, okay, now we do have a pie, like 
now now we're actually talking about a real pie and we're going to take that pie and you're each going to get a portion of it and it could be 50 50 and it could be 45 55 and you're going to walk away with that pie but now your pie is your new whole okay and that's what people they they miss that last part right yes. you can take a piece of the pie it wasn't all yours before it wasn't, it wasn't all, all yours. It wasn't all yours. I think that's before. a problem for a lot of people. Like, and I'm not, I'm, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to say like a lot of times if it was the man who was the breadwinner, that's their thinking is why well, I'm the one who went to work every day and I'm the one who made all the money and you know, blah, blah, blah. We've all heard the story, but it wasn't your pie. And if you didn't want to share your pie, then you shouldn't have put a ring on it. But as you and I both know, the harsher reality is when the woman yeah. makes more money than the man. Yeah, that is a hard one. Because as much as real good hometown feminists want equality, that's not the equality that they want. It's true, right? I think we all have a hard time with that. We, you know, we know intellectually, well, there's the alimony statute. And if the, the mom was the breadwinner and dad wasn't, he's entitled to alimony. So that's why and you know, it's funny because Allison and I talk about it all the time and my accountant and I talk about it all the time and my accountant will say things like doesn't your husband hate you (laughs) I'd be like no I've got it so good and you know and it's funny because I think sometimes you know when we first were married he obviously made more money than me and that was the case until actually it was the case until probably 2010 and then we were making about the same amount of money and then when I started my own practice, I made substantially more than I did when I was in a, a partnership with Schreiber. But, you know, honestly, you know, I my husband now works for the business. You know, he does not right now he's furloughed because he's unable to work because he's staying home and taking care of the kids during the pandemic. You had to furlough him? I did. <laughs> because he can't come in and work because he's got our son all day every day. Yeah. So, Do you know, you sexually harass him. <laughs> I try. Okay, inappropriate question. I, I try. <laughs> here, here's, here's a good one, because I know you like people to like tell funny things on here or open up. So I've been trying to get my husband to have sex with me in the office. <laughs> for, he won't? I've been practicing law in a, in a law firm since 2004. He's never had sex with me in any of the offices that I have ever been in. There you have it, kids. In case you were wondering. Now that has to be my new question with every guest. Have Have you you ever ever had sex with your spouse in your office? (laughs) I mean, it's a good question. So even nobody's here, people are here, whatever it is, he will not come near me. Is he afraid someone's going to find out or walk in or? And of course, I do it just to like poke fun now. But no, so I, I make more than my husband and I'm the boss and he... He doesn't have a problem with it, and it works for us. And I think that, you know, again, sort of outward looking in, a man might say, you know, oh, that's great, you know, let her go do all the work or whatever. But belying that, most men are not going to feel manly in that circumstance. I think it would bother most men. So hopefully, you know, by raising my son to use words like panties 
Yeah, it's going to change his it's going to change his perspective. Or it's not change because he didn't have one to start with. It, it will shape his perspective. And it's something that I have done with her, you know, like he, my husband would say th- and not he's 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 great. So I don't want you to take it the wrong way. But he would say things to her like she would say, oh, can I play football? And he would say no. Right. Because his knee jerk reaction was he didn't want her to do something that physically would hurt her. And that mm-hmm. is sort of like a traditional like that's a guy thing to do. Because it's a bunch of boys being rough. Mm. And I would step in and I would say, if you want to play football, then you can play football. Now, there was not a chance in hell I was ever going to let her play football. But I wanted her to believe that she was going to be able to play football. Yes. Yeah, I see that. I think that is important. And it's hard to do because it's so ingrained in us. It's just so ingrained in our culture. And we have these things that are traditionally male things mm-hmm. and traditionally female things. And we don't know how to get out of our own way, if yeah. you will, to... I think um, to awareness, just being more aware of it. But it's with everything, you know, like even with sexual orientation, right? I, I don't care. I always have said I would be honored to have a child... You know, I feel like I would be a great parent for a child who was an LGBT child, right? Because I don't care, right? Mm-hmm. I would encourage yeah. and foster and let them be who they are and, and do all of those things. And I would, you know, it, it wouldn't matter to me. So, you know, Madison, whatever, she, whoever she ends up with, I don't care. My son, it was funny because I, we, we did things the same way with him that we did with her. And he's like, he loves women, you know? And from like a baby, he loved women and you could tell. And, um, you know, we joke now because we're like, yeah, there is no way, right? Like he's like, he grabs boobies. He talks <laughs> about boobies. He's like, you know. Yeah, I think it's a, I've, I've had people tell me that, you know, I knew my son or my daughter was gay from the time that they were little. I just knew. And it's important, if you know, to make sure that they know that it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, because there's so much stress around that. There's yeah. so much. There's so much stress around everything. I know everything. If you're not different, if you're different, for, even in the slightest way, there's so much stress around it. You know, what are people going to think of me and how are they going to treat me? And it's really sad. So because of who I am... It has allowed me to really make this um, an important component of raising my kids and to let them know that whoever they are, whatever it is, you know, I'm there, I'm their cheerleader, I'm supporting them, I'm backing them 100%. You know, now with Madison, Madison has become very into music in the last two years. How old is she? She's 17. Wow, I can't believe it. I can't believe she's 17. She's. We're looking at colleges. She put in her application to Berkeley College of Music. Aren't you going to be so sad when she leaves? If she leaves? Because she's a junior? She's a, she's a rising senior, so she okay. starts her senior year in a couple weeks. Well, if she was going to start next year because of COVID, she might not actually go anywhere. So I think I see a little tear in Amy's eye, everybody. <laughs> You know, Madison has just been with me for so long. 17 years. I mean, she's <laughs> just, and as you know, we almost lost her when she was a baby. She had bacterial meningitis. So we That's crazy. We went through, um, 
you know, a bad couple of years with her, you know, the year that, like, when Elizabeth died, it was, like, just as as Madison was sort of coming out of the, the two years of having gone through a lot of shit medically. And so it was, like, a bad, bad run for a couple of years. But I had somewhat... Uh, <laughs> and I joke about this too. I feel bad sometimes. I joke about the poor pandemic, and it's it's not about the people. It's just about like my my crazy life. But for years, I've been this person who's like anything could happen, right? Like yeah. she can't go anywhere because something cr- bad, crazy could like who gets bacterial meningitis, right? Yeah. Like it's weird. So um, I'll be like, you know, she could get like she can't go to camp because she could be like eaten by a bear or something, right? And my husband's like you're crazy. And I'm like, I am, but, you know, look at the perspective. And so now everybody's like pandemic and I'm like, told you. <laughs> I've been saying yeah, this right. for years, you know, See? like anything yeah. could happen. Yeah. But no, I mean, I think I'm okay with her going to school and, and moving out-ish. So you basically have a baby every 10 years. So you're doing about three years. Don't tell my husband. No, we're, we're, we're done. How old are you? 45? I'm 45. Yeah, you could. Janet Jackson had a baby at 50. No, it's biologically impossible now. Oh, okay. I see. We were double fixed. Wow, double fixed. It's a long story. Well, you remember when I was trying to get pregnant, how mm-hmm. how crazy it was. And I'm like, I was in the office doing like IVF injections. And yeah, it was it was a, a bad, crazy scene. But yeah, but no. I love my children. I inhale them. I cannot get enough of them. I want to spend every moment with them. I miss them when they are not in my presence. But I'm, I guess, okay with being done (laughs) and having grandchildren someday. Yes. Yes. You can look forward to that one day. And then I'll just travel to wherever they're at. Little babies with pink hair. Little babies with pink hair. And, you know... And I can maybe drive like a pink Ferrari or something and Mm -hmm. they can come and visit their crazy grandmother. And so that's the plan. And I'll pretend like I was never anybody important in the world. Right. Like I never did anything of any significance. And I'll just hide out. No, I don't. I don't. Amy, come on. I don't (laughs) see that ever happening. Really. All of a sudden one day. Yeah, maybe I'll just be I'll just blend in. No. I'm solely focused on retirement at this point, so I have I have a 13-year plan that has been implemented. Ooh, well, what year are we? So 13 years from now? From now. Okay. And then uh, that'll my son will be in, in college. What are you going to do with yourself? I have a plan. What's the plan? It won't happen because What's everything ends up being like, oh, you know, and then I end up doing like, something crazy. There's but. this saying that life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Right. So I like that. So I want to go back and finish my PhD, but I'm going to do a PhD in women's studies. At the end of the 13 years? Yeah, once I re- right. when okay. I retire. I don't have time to do it right now. And I, wanna, and I want to focus on it, and I'd like to actually, like, go to class and be on campus. I love the college lifestyle, so I'd like to go back and do that. And, You'll um, be a disruptor. Of course I will. Well, you kind of are now. And I'll have the the stupid pink hair or or purple hair or whatever I'll decide to have or or papaya. Papaya is my new color. 
But yeah, so I want to go back and finish the PhD in women's studies this time. And, um, you know, and travel a little bit. Professor? professor? No, maybe, maybe not. Okay, that'll be interesting. I'll take one of your classes. I I taught college briefly, you know, when I was doing the, the graduate work. It's, it's good. It's fun. It's, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know. I, happy seeing you go into court with guns blazing. I don't know if you're going to settle comfortably into a retirement existence like the one you're describing. <laughs> I'm going to ask Allison Williams what she thinks. Allison will hopefully be traveling with me at least once a year by that point. And no, that's, I mean, I love to travel. And Mike and I have obviously, you know, because of the pandemic, all of our travel plans for this year were canceled. We've also, mm-hmm. and we, yeah. we travel a lot. And we've decided to cancel all the travel plans for next year. And we probably will not travel by air until like sometime in 2022. Certainly not with the kids. Yeah, that's sad. I wanted to travel too. I'm jonesing to travel to get on a plane and go somewhere but it is what it is i mean we we canceled a lot of good trips this year too prague prague was on the list we had um for the international academy was doing a meeting in prague we were going to go we had plans to take the kids to vegas in april cruise we were going to go on a cruise this year well like you said i think some good things have come out of covid i think that's the way, at least the way that I choose to look at it. Uh, some good things came of it. I mean, I changed my entire work existence. So instead of working seven days a week and then taking, you know, 10 to 14 day vacations a couple of times a year, now I'm at home on Saturdays and Sundays. I mean, I might still work a little bit in the morning before it because I'm, you know, I'm up at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I don't sleep, you know, it's, it's life. So I'm up at the crack of dawn and everybody else is still sleeping. But, you know, but now I'll get up and I'll go outside and sit by my pool and have a cup of coffee and, you know, do some emails and then they wake up and then I just spend the day with them and it's enjoyable and it makes me smile. That's good. That's what we want to do every day. Smile, right? Oh, and well, I know you don't have any kids of your own, but I know that you're very close with Sydney. So, you know, that feeling it's like they're just they're just joy. They are. Especially at Sydney's age, she's seven. That young age where they're not jaded yet. And I don't know how to describe it. They're just so full of love and sunshine. They, you know, they, they're just not jaded yet. They don't look at things negatively. They're always present. They're not worrying about, you know, what they have to do in the future. And that's really nice because I think adults, most of us are just incapable of doing that. And they have, and girls are different than boys. So they're, they are a little smarter growing up. You know, they sort of hit developmental milestones a little quicker, in my opinion. I've heard that. In my experience, I think that they just sort of develop a lot. But for me, the perspective is, of course, between my daughter and my son. And so we were very serious with her because we went through something very serious and I had this like two year period of my life where it was just like between her and Elizabeth, I felt like all I dealt with was like medical crises. And with him, everything is just so like whimsical, you know? He's been good, healthy, no oh, emergencies. Not, I mean, you know, and, and he's, it's like, you know, he, he just does like crazy, stupid things and he's like 
hanging off the back of the sofa and upside down and you know jumping from from the bed to the this and uh, I mean and he's just he's a lunatic and he makes me laugh all the time you know he makes himself laugh yeah I sometimes I see people with these strollers and I and, I, and there's all this stuff and I'm like how can that one little baby require all of that like what a pain in the ass that must be and I think why do people have these little things? <laughs> and I, but, and, but but it's because of the the reasons you just said. But I did that with her, and every I think everybody is guilty of this. Like I did that with her because like you're a first time parent, you don't know, and you're crazy, and you you know you think you need all of these things. And then with him, it was like we would run out, and like I would have forgotten something, and I would just run into the store and like buy a pack of diapers <laughs> and wipes, and I'd be like, oh, I forgot the diapers, you know. So like we're out for hours, <laughs> like you know, I just would stop at the store to buy things because I didn't care. That's so funny. I remember one of the first times that I took Sydney, my goddaughter, for anyone who doesn't know, I took her out for a day. She was maybe, she, well, she was in diapers, but she could walk. So I was packing the bag and I didn't put all that stuff in it. And I'm sitting there going, what do we need this bag for? And then I realize. Oh, yeah. I mean, at some point, I'm probably gonna have to change her diaper. And then you need the wipes and the desitin. And oh, she's probably what if she wants a snack? Okay, so I guess I got to put a snack in there. And then before I knew it, the bag was full. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. Now I I get all the shit that's in the stroller now. So yeah, those those little buggers are, (laughs) they require a lot. But I but I think it's worth it. The return on your investment, yes. right? Or for for the business nerds out there, your ROI. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, look, they're they're great, and you can mold them and teach them. And if you're a good person, then you can really make more of yourself in a positive way. You know, sometimes they just they fill a need. You know, like I I very much grieved for the loss of my best friend. And I knew that she was never going to have children. And I wanted there to be a a human in the world that was here because she was not. And that's him, right? And it's not like he has some great pressure in the universe to perform for it. Yeah, just being. He just, he exists. And if she had lived, I wouldn't have him. And I don't know if I would be better or worse. I would still have her. And she... You might have she, had twins. I, it, I, it's doubtful. I, you know, I, I always said Madison was the greatest gift I ever got. She, everything in my life that is good is from her, right? Because of her, I have my husband. I don't think I would have married him if we hadn't gotten pregnant, right? Yeah. Because of her, I made the decision to look for a clerkship. And I got the job working for Judge Micheletti, and then I got the job working. And I would not be here right where I'm at right this second if she didn't exist. Well, it's something you said earlier that everything that you've done, I'm not saying it exactly the way you did, but everything that you've done has brought you to the place you are now. And everything you're doing now will bring you to wherever I am Right, It's just providence. But to allow yourself to move with what happens. Like if I had said, oh, I'm a third year law student, you know, how am I gonna have a baby and I'm not married and, you know, if I had 
approached the situation differently, right? And made a different choice, which I could have made. I could have chosen to have an abortion, right? Mm -hmm. That's well within my right to do that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not what I wanted to do. Um, And I remember having the conversation with Mike and basically saying to him, listen, I'm not making this decision for you. You also have a choice. You can stay with me. You can have this baby with me. And if you, if that's not what you want, then you don't have to be here. And I'm not, there's no judgment. This isn't like, you know. Wow. So. Not too many women would have said that. No. But I was okay either way with what our, I I didn't want our relationship to be um, tied to her, that there was that pressure on her. Right. But. I'm glad that things happened the way that they did because I love my husband, right? And I love our life. And then I have this wonderful son. But if I had not made that decision to have her, right? Or the whoops, right? We always call her the whoops baby. I hate when people say accident. She's not. Surprise. I prefer surprise. She's a whoops. Well, whoops is better than accident. I say whoops, but you know, like, honestly, I just don't think we cared. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that we both knew that we were going to be together. And I just think we didn't take the proper precautions that people who didn't want to get pregnant. You were like, no way (laughs) that can't happen right now. So, I mean, he would tell a different story. He would tell you that, you know, like I roped it like my grandfather. Right. So I roped him in to getting it, getting myself pregnant. And maybe I should interview him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you would tell a totally different story. It's, it's amazing how whatever it was that happened in my life up to that point got me to the point where I could say, okay, you know, I'm having a baby, right? And I'm just going to do it. And she's amazing, right? She was amazing before she was born, you know, when as, as I got to know her. She was amazing as a baby, and she's been with me all of this time. So, yeah, like when you tell me, like, she's going away to college, like, yeah. it's painful because... I, you know, been with you all this time. So for anybody who's listening, if you were ever wondering what turns Amy into a softy, it's my kids. There you have it. I think that's true for most people. But it's, but, but I, uh, it's all kids. I mean, that's, I, I have such a passion for taking care of them, you know, and trying to, to do right by them. And I love them. And I, 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 that's, Like, if you see me with kids, that's like a totally different side of me. I think that's true of a lot of people. I think you see them with their kids and it's like a different personality shows up. And even other people's kids, too. Yeah, I think with kids in general. You know, they're because they're... They're They're so innocent. And they're just small adults, right? Well, they're not even adults, though, because adults already have all these judgments and insecurities. And like I said, they're they're jaded just from life. I think that's what life just does to you. But a little kid doesn't have that. They can be. But, you know, unless they're a bad seed. Like, you know, the a movies. bad seed. I'm right? going to send like you a book. Kid. We have this bad seed book that we like all, all to read at home. I love when Sydney will ask questions. One time I said something about a wedgie. And she just goes, what's a wedgie? And it's just so cute. It's like she there's so little about the world that she actually knows. You know, she didn't know what a wedgie was. I had to explain to her what that was. And things like that happen all the time. And 
I don't know. It just makes you feel warm and fuzzy when you realize that there's so much that she doesn't know. But don't you feel like we do that with other adults all the time too? Like people will say something and then I'll be like, okay. Let me learn you something. <laughs> Let, we're, going, we're going to have to pray about this. Well, yes, but those are much more complicated things that they don't know. You sit and be quiet. I'll talk a lot. <laughs> and, and when your child, when you are teaching your child something, they trust you. So they believe whatever it is you're saying. The adult is already jaded. They're thinking, why is she saying this to me? And so Sydney's seven. Yeah. When Sydney is 17, let us have this conversation again. Yeah, I haven't dealt with her at 17, um, so we'll see. It's, uh, yeah, it's a little bit different when they're, when they when they hit the teenage years but but yes to your point i think you are correct they are a clean slate and they are very open to information and they uh very much can be swayed in whatever direction oh yeah absolutely you want to sway them and that's good but anyway, I have to say we've been we were only supposed to do this for an hour and we've been doing this a lot longer than an hour. So maybe we have to do another one. Oh, we could do another one. Well, thank you for being so honest and spilling your guts. I feel like there was more. Maybe we'll do it again. You'll tell me a deep, dark secret. <laughs> I mean, there's not much of a secret to tell about. Yeah, you you don't keep a lot secret. Uh, I mean, there's uh, there's just there's nothing that uh, there's nothing that mysterious. And people people read into me what they want to, and that's fine. I think people do try to figure you out, and I I I'll admit that I've done that, but I don't really think you need to think that hard about it. Like it is what it is. Like this person, because I think a lot of people don't do that. They don't really show you who they are, but you're you're doing it like there's not much to think about this is what it is what she's showing you that's what it is right but that's i think the problem exactly and they're they're not used to somebody who's just you know with crazy hair or you know yell yells to yell or challenges you know i mean you've seen me argue cases i don't back down with judges and they don't like they don't even the judges don't know what to do with it so those are kind of distractions though like the pink hair i mean if you had brown hair or blonde hair I mean, I don't, I don't think we're talking about you because you have pink hair. No, we're talking about me because I have uh, a public persona that is out so far outside the norm, because most people feel that they have to, uh, you know, the Billy Joel strong song, The Stranger. I always yeah. use that as the analogy. It's like we all have a face that we hide away, right? Yeah. And then we take them out and show ourselves uh, when everyone is gone. Well, there's uh, psychologists that have similar theories, too. I can't remember any of them from college. <laughs> but what? But but my feeling always is, is what purpose does that serve, you know? Well, it serves a purpose for them, for people that aren't comfortable showing who they are. But then they find themselves and they end up in these situations that are negative or they can't get themselves out of or they don't make money or they 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 spend money improperly or whatever it is, or they end up in bad relationships or they end up in abusive relationships because they're trying to be something that they're not. And then they're attracting people to them that are creating more problems. They are. And then they end up in therapy talking about it, about why they do that and how to stop 
Okay. And there's like a whole cottage industry for therapists. Oh, yeah, there is. There is. But anyway, that's all we have today. So thank you for listening to Wake Up Call and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.